Thank you for joining us today for our second module of the SDA Adolescent Webinar Series. I'm Beth Allenson, Accredited Sports Dietitian and In-House Sports Dietitian for SDA. I'll be facilitating the webinar series and would like to introduce Associate Professor and Advanced Sports Dietitian Ben Desbrow and Sports Medicine Physician Dr Sharon Stay. Associate Professor Desbrow is a distinctively experienced and qualified dietitian with extensive experience in the area of clinical and sports nutrition. Following eight years of clinical work, he was awarded the inaugural Nestle, Nestle Fellowship in Sports Nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport. Following the fellowship, he was employed as a lecturer at Griffith University and completed a PhD in sports nutrition in 2008. Then conducts research in applied sports and clinical nutrition. These studies investigate the effect of dietary manipulation on exercise performance and the capacity to undertake activities of daily living, such as driving. Within his academic role, he endeavours to educate in a passionate way to inspire students to explore new boundaries in science and have a positive impact on the health of the population through diet, nutrition and exercise. Sharon is a sport and exercise medicine physician with many years of experience working with elite athletes, including her current roles as sports physician to the National Tennis Academy at the Queensland Tennis Centre and match day doctor for Queensland Reds and Wallabies games at Suncourt Stadium. Sharon works as a medical educator for World Rugby, helping to deliver courses in on-field emergency medical care. She's an educator and on the most course has a role as a clinical lecturer in the Master of Sports Medicine course at the University of Queensland. She also consults for external organisations such as the Australian Institute of Sport to deliver medical education for athletes. In her practice, Sharon enjoys the challenge of working with members of the community from all backgrounds and all fitness levels. She's keen on helping everyone achieve their personal best in whatever sport they choose. She thoroughly enjoys providing care for developing adolescent athletes and treating female athletes. So in today's presentation, we will address the general energy and nutrient requirements of young athletes in response to lifestyle and training competition load, elite sport and personal development. It takes a village managing developing athletes, the role of a sports physician and engaging the sports dietitian, and the case study of the developing athlete. To start with, we have a poll around our pre-learning that was put together by Pascal Young and Zoe Davidson, and we thank you. We thank them for that and hope that you've had a chance to have a look at that. So we ask you to grab your mobile phone as we have, that will be accessed by a QR code. So please, if you don't have your phone, grab it now. You're also invited to post any questions as you think of them using the chat box. We'll endeavor to get to those at the end of today's session. If by any chance we don't have time, we will attach the answers to your questions when this presentation is uploaded to Moodle, which will occur either today or tomorrow. So get ready, strap yourselves in for some stimulating education and I'll now hand over to Ben. Thanks very much, Beth. And I'll just quickly share my screen to get started. Um, and as I do that, um, I'd uh, like to thank SDA for putting on um, a webinar series devoted to adolescent athletes. It's been an area of uh, particular interest of mine for, uh, for some time. And I think uh, dietitians, sports dietitians have a, a great role to play here um, to demonstrate, you know, just the positive power that um, food and nutrition can have in somebody's life. So over the next few modules, hopefully we'll take some of the, the pre-learning and sort of develop that um, and nuance that um, enthusiasm you've got for adolescent sport nutrition um, and, and you know, really develop your understanding in that area. 
So this is the first time you've met as a group. Um, we had some pre-reading um, material. And so the first thing that we're going to, uh, to have a look at is the, um, a, a quick recap of that. Um, now that was a, a one hour session. And so we don't have time to necessarily cover all of those things, but we're gonna, well, I'm gonna highlight a couple of things that I think are particularly important to come away with. Um, and then some um, particular aspects of elite sport and personal development, as um, Beth alluded to. Um, and then we're going to do this uh, session that involves um, understanding the relationship between a sports physician and how a sports dietitian can work with a sports physician um, by the use of a case study. So the first thing that I would like you to do is grab your mobile phone, as Beth alluded to, and um, either using the QR code or the link, I have a question that I'd like you to answer. Now, this is Honesty Corner. We're starting up. Any relationship is best based on honesty. And so this is what we're going to get you to, to answer the, the first question that we have. And um, the question is a pretty simple one. But again, remember, this needs to be based in honesty. I want you to give me an understanding of which of the following best describes your experience with the pre-reading material. And this will help guide. And you can see here, we've got about um, 35 people online. So I'll just give you a few seconds. It looks like the poll's working, which is excellent. We've got a few honest people here that are down in the, in the blue column end um, saying that, you know, there was pre-reading material, um, but I had little time to review it. Uh, there's a few of you who didn't realise that there was pre-reading material. Um, so those people will need um, some particular support. But by the looks of things, as the numbers come in here, we've got about half the group who have looked at it, but wouldn't like to be quizzed on it and would benefit from a little bit of a review. So um, I'll just wait for another couple of responses. We've got about 20 responses there, but I think that starts to give us a bit of a feel for, for where, where we're at. Okay, so if that's, uh, if that's where we're at, a little bit of a review, let's have a look at a couple of um, quick questions um, that may um, give me a better understanding of how you have responded to that pre-reading material. So you should have another question now um, in front of you. And the question is, adolescents deal with heat stress. So heat stress was discussed in the pre-reading material. Um, so heat stress associated with exercise, do adolescents deal with that differently um, due to um, which of these factors? So do they have a lower sweat rate than adults due to a lower heat production by each gland and therefore increased risk of heat illness. Do children and adolescents rely more on peripheral blood redistribution rather than sweating? Is the sweating threshold higher in adolescents than in adults and children? Or is the sweat response more efficient in adolescents, meaning they do not need to sweat as much to tolerate the same heat load as adults? We're at 50-50 pretty much here. Flip of a coin. Anyone who's putting in a response at this point for options C and D is going to prove rather unique. But it looks like we've got ourselves a split decision. So there's actually two correct answers here, possibly. There is, in fact, only one correct answer. So we'll wait to see how this uh, starts to tease out now with about 22 responses. And as the last 
uh, numbers come in, we're starting to see that the children and adolescents rely more on peripheral blood redistribution as being the more popular of the two answers. And those people at 58% of people would be correct. Um, most recent studies suggest that children and adolescents have a similar heat tolerance to adults, but they dissipate that heat through different mechanisms. Uh, and that's possibly because of their body surface area to weight ratio, but also because sweat glands develop during adolescence. And so your capability of sweating during uh, the younger years or your developmental years is less than what you've got as an adult. Okay, let's have a look at the next question now. The second of our review questions. Now this, when it presents on a phone, will give you a series of options and you need to choose one of these nutrients. So it says rank the following nutrients from the most at risk of insufficiency in late puberty, pu uh, pubertal female athletes. So the most, first one you need to, to, to identify is the nutrient most at risk. And then when you press plus on your device, it will then give you a second option and your first selection that you've made will no longer be there. So hopefully it'll become evident as you start answering the question that number one is your most at risk nutrient and then so on and so forth. And we should see, if you think about this in terms of the pre-reading material, which nutrients were discussed or described in that pre-reading material. So three of these nutrients were described in detail, two of them weren't. And then from there, there's probably some other issues that sort of tease out the three that were, well, so we've got ourselves iron at the top leading the way as the most at risk nutrient, calcium, protein, fiber, and sodium running up the tail. About 22 responses now, we had, this is like a vaccination rate between the states. We had initial start and then we had a sort of changeover, but we are sort of now establishing ourselves. And unfortunately being in Queensland, I'm like the sodium of this group. Um, our vaccination rate is appalling, but nonetheless, I think we've got a, a reasonable agreement here that iron, calcium and protein are particularly uh, are nutrients of interest. And I would agree with that. So I'm really pleased that that's been teased out um, from, from the, the population that we have. And that you, the fact that you put protein as the third nutrient, most likely at risk of in, insufficiency, I would also agree with that. And calcium and iron at the top uh, uh, are the two sort of standout nutrients with, with iron probably taking precedence. So that's excellent. Okay, one more question. This is, who, who said we we're gonna have an exam? This is sort of a little bit of fun, isn't it? This one relates to a little bit of what we were talking about before with regards to temperature regulation. So which of the following statements is correct? A team of adolescent water polo players is, are they more prone to hypothermia due to a higher body surface area to weight ratio, less prone to hypothermia due to higher body surface area to weight ratio, and then the alternates of those, which is more prone to hypothermia due to a lower body surface area. I'll just wait for the responses to come in here. And those people who are responding late are obviously getting the benefit of seeing their peers. Okay, and there's one standout result here. So either people are reading the pre-material questions as we're, as we're asking these questions, they're doing a SWOT 
because we're becoming much, much smarter as this webinar is going on. So I'm taking that as personal reflection of my teaching ability, um, that you are aware that people are in the younger years, they have a higher body surface area to weight ratio and that they are more prone to heat loss in that environment. So that is excellent. Well done. Okay, I think that's the last of my questions. Yes, it is. So I'm gonna, so we wanna keep your phone handy because we're gonna come back and ask you some more questions in a moment. I'm gonna flick back to the presentation now and um, just get back onto our screen. Just bear with me for a second. Um, you can see that, Sharon, do you mind just give me the thumbs up so I know that we can see it? Awesome, excellent. Okay, so we've done the pre-reading questions. I found when I did the pre-reading and I learned something in the pre-reading, um, you know, the, the material was excellent um, coverage of what you need to know when working with, with junior athletes in this space. But there are a couple of what I've called highlights. So I put the torch there that I think need to be teased out a little bit more. And I'd like to just unpack um, those elements a little bit more than what we've seen in the pre-reading material. The first thing is around energy and nutrient requirements. So normally when we calculate someone's energy and we break it down, we look at their basal metabolic rate, the thermic effect of food, thermogenesis and physical activity or exercise sits on the end. When you're dealing with young people, adolescents, um, I, I like to break physical activity up, particularly in, a, in a, a young developing athlete, to the formal physical activity they do and then this other component of spontaneous physical activity. And that spontaneous physical activity can be very low or it could be also very high. And it's, it's quite a challenge to potentially put a, a figure on that depending on um, the social interaction that the person has, uh, whether they're staying over at a friend's place and not sleeping for large chunks of the night, um, they're involved in um, you know, a gaming community where they sit on the couch and do a lot of gaming. Um, so we, we have this um, large fluctuation in physical activity that sits um, in addition to um, formal training or sport that they may, they may participate in. And then obviously we've got this, this growth component as well. So when we talk about energy needs of a, of a developing athlete, we talk about uh, the need to manage their, their training, but also manage growth. So I, I want to unpackage um, growth a little bit in a moment. Um, it's also important to remember that when a, a young person um, you know, conducts a, a, a sporting event, and let's say they, they run five kilometres, a young person running five kilometres is going to burn off a lot more energy, typically relative to their body weight, than an adult will. And that's because they're mechanically more inefficient when they perform sport. Now, obviously, depending on their skill level and the training status of an individual and the age of the individual, that will settle as someone goes through uh, into later adolescence. But it is a, is a factor to, to just bear in mind. As I said, I wanted to unpackage growth a little bit and get you thinking about the energy needs of growth. Now, when we, when we describe growth and the energy that's, ex, that, that's used for growth or this additional energy that's required when someone's growing or going through um, pubertal development, we can think of that energy in two ways. There's the energy that goes into those new structures being built. And there's also the energy that's housed within the structure. Okay. And so the way I like to think of this is think of, Think about um, a brick layer and a brick wall. When you're going through um, puberty, your, your body structures are growing. So the wall is being built, if you like, and there is energy within the bricks and mortar. 
So in order to, to make those bricks and mortar, there's energy stored within that. But then we also have the energy that's expended to build the wall, which is like your brick layer. So it's the, it's the energy that you're burning off as you're constructing these new tissues. Now, the energy that's expended when we're synthesizing new tissues, like the energy from the brick layer, we can pick that energy up. We can measure that through measures of um, energy expenditure like doubly labeled water. So we can quantify the difference between the energy expenditure from a person who's growing and a person who's not um, in terms of that energy that's expended to synthesize new tissues. The energy that's deposited within growing tissues, we estimate that. And there's a paper that was published about 15 years ago, which, which is well used and well cited. It quotes about eight and a half kilojoules per gram of new tissue as an estimate for how much energy is stored within that tissue. So to, to, to draw that out a little bit, as an example, if you've got a 15 year old male athlete who's gaining about six kilos a year, which is pretty typical for somebody in that very high growth phase in males, that, that energy that's stored within those growing tissues is about 150 kilojoules per day. That is just this deposited component. You require more energy to build that tissue, but the energy that's stored is about 140 kilojoules per day. Okay. So that's, that's spotlight number one. Second spotlight, which is a continuation of that. Oh, sorry. That, well, sorry. It's still in the first spotlight. It's still about energy. The thing that I wanted to highlight to you is that we have relatively new equations for determining the energy expenditure for, from resting metabolic processes in adolescent athletes. So typically we might employ or have formally employed a, a Harris-Benedict equation or a Schofield type equation to determine the met resting metabolic rate of an adolescent athlete. We now have, as of last uh, year, um, a publication which has validated an energy equation for adolescent athletes. And this is the equation here. Um, and it was developed from a cohort of athletes uh, who are uh, about 16 and a half years of age. And uh, they are um, active individuals. And so in this case, um, we can use this uh, equation because if you, if you use one of the traditional equations, like as I mentioned, Harris-Benedict or Schofield, you'll probably underestimate the energy requirement by about 300 kilocalories per day. So uh, it will, you, you will start off by not estimating their basal requirement well. Um, the other final thing that I want to say about energy is that it's a very, very difficult thing to establish someone's energy requirement. We know that the changes that are associated with an individual's physical activity and or training are likely to have a much greater influence on their total energy requirement than the demands of growth. So when you factor in the increase, if you like, in the brick layer and in the bricks, in comparison to the energy that can be burned off through training or changes in training, that will create a much greater change in the energy demand than the growth will. So that, that's important. But when we think about a young athlete, and this is just one example that we may see, we may have an individual that throughout the year is involved in multiple sports. Those sports may have very different energy demands. They may have very different physical demands in terms of the pursuit um, of the sport from skill-based sport to endurance sport to strength power sports, uh, and then back to endurance sports. And there may be some overlap here between seasons. 
And so from an adolescent athlete perspective, it is about understanding the complexity and not being too wedded to having an equation or a particular calculation that says, this is this person's energy need. It's more about establishing a ballpark and then working with the individual in that space. Okay, highlight number two that I just wanted to show, uh, talk to you about was, was in regards to protein. Uh, we know that um, young, young adolescent athletes have higher protein requirements due to growth. Um, we, we know that their protein requirement is somewhat linked to their energy intake um, and that most adolescent athletes are going to consume enough protein to meet their needs. So why, why is it that young adolescents start to develop um, greater lean mass, even if they only increase their protein intake slightly? Um, one of the explanations for what's going on in this space around adolescent athletes is that there is a period of time in your life when you're, when you're depositing lean tissue where the body becomes more sensitive to protein amino acid utilization. In other words, your, your, what, what has been termed enhanced anabolic sensitivity. So your, your protein structures are in a state of con continuous synthesis and breakdown, and those free amino acids are more readily being incorporated back up into proteins rather than being deaminated or oxidized or, or, or utilized for other processes. So um, this is one of the reasons that it's been a challenge to work out protein requirements in adolescent athletes is because it's not necessarily just about putting more protein in because the body is becoming more sensitive to utilizing the amino acids when they're being broken down. So this is a very good thing from a dietetic perspective because it means that you don't have to keep shoving more and more protein in. The body is naturally becoming better and more sensitive to the use of those amino acids. So yes, we still need to pay attention to how much protein an individual needs if they wanna maximize that response, but the body has an inherent way of managing the amino acid sensitivity through adolescence, and that's important. So when we have a look at protein requirements, I split it up into sort of my, my thinking into two spaces. On the right-hand side of this table over here, we have the RDI. So this is about deficiency or avoiding deficiency. And when we see boys and girls and we look at the relative amounts, remember that their adult requirement is about 0 0.75, 0 0.8 grams per kilo. So yes, they are slightly elevated in terms of adolescence. But when we look at um, studies that have been done on adolescent athletes and how much protein they may need to consume in order to maximize, so not avoid deficiency, but maximize the protein synthetic response, it's more like around 1.5 grams per kilo per day with that amount being spread out in small amounts evenly across the day so that the amino acids are coming in in a measured way as opposed to large boluses of two large protein meals in a day. So this is deficiency over here. This is sort of optimization over here. And I'm sure many of you would realize that there would be um, lots of individuals who would, who would meet 1.5 grams per kilo body weight per day relatively easily as adolescent athletes. And for the most part, the use of protein supplements will put them well in advance of, of, of that requirement. Okay, and the final thing I wanted to touch on as a highlight, looking at the time here, I've got about a couple of minutes, so I'm, I'm going okay, so stay with me. The early literature, as I said, in terms of fluid regulation, put a, a, a large emphasis on risk 
and concern around uh, adolescent athletes overheating and the risk of heat-related illnesses. That is still um, a concern. Obviously, we're concerned about heat-related illnesses, but through better study techniques, which have been more applied relative to the individual's body weight or the amount of heat that's being produced in an exercise task, what we've, what we've been able to see or observe is that adolescent athletes are actually reasonably good at uh, moderating heat loads. But as I said in one of the questions, they're doing it via a di different mechanism. So they rely more on this body surface area to weight ratio advantage that they've got, where we see blood redistribution and, and um, heat radiating from the skin as opposed to evaporation. And there's some really good studies in the literature that show that as you go through adolescence, that's really when the sweat glands mature and start producing uh, a large amounts of, or larger amounts of fluid. But um, we also know that individuals who are young and do a lot of training um, have um, the capacity to, to increase this. And so um, we know that many athletes, um, like adult athletes, are required, you know, require encouragement to drink. Um, here's just one paper showing, um, in this case, a triathlon where we've got um, in-field testing and we do see large fluid shifts. This is senior girls here um, and, and the senior boys. So we're seeing um, for senior girls in this triathlon, either no weight shift to minus 2.8% and for the boys, some actually gained weight, but some of them lost up to 4.5% of their body weight during a triathlon. So obviously we're seeing large fluid shifts, which is, which is not... Um, a huge departure from what we may see in, in adults. Okay, so they're, they're my three um, highlights that I wanted to take away. What I wanna finish on for the next 10 minutes is really what I think is the core business of why this seminar series is so important. So how do we take a young individual who's interested in sport and nurture their enthusiasm for the sport, but also nurture their relationship with their body, their relationship with food, fueling themselves and preparing their body for lifelong health and development. So let's, let's talk about elite sport development and put that in context. And then we're gonna throw across to personal development. And we're gonna dovetail that into this webinar series. So how does an elite athlete develop? There's been studies looking at this. This is one example of a study that looked at world junior championship finalists, so just those who made the finals in middle and long distance running events, and whether they went on to compete at international adult level and win medals at World Championships and Olympic Games. And this was a, a study that followed finalists across six competitions from 2002 to 2012, total of just over 350 athletes, and then looked using the IAAF points to see whether they were still in the sport and also obviously events to determine whether they actually won medals, won championships as adults. So of these, these were finalists. These weren't people who just turned up to the championships. These were the eight people in the race, in a, in a, in a, in a middle distance race, or you know, slightly larger group in, in a larger final. Of those, almost half of those finalists were considered to have dropped out in two years. So they didn't have enough IAAF points to have suggested that they'd stayed within athletics. And only 6% went on to medal at Olympic Games or World Championships. So the authors concluded that success at a young age wasn't a springboard for later success. So how do we go from novice to elite? And so this has been the subject of interest 
enthusiastic encouragement for a long time. What's in the black box here? If we can, if we can harness this, we're going, to, uh, we're going to become very popular. Well, it's through, I guess, talent, identification, focus, and specialization. And that's what we're talking about today is this, this T area. And in Australia, this is the model that we use to describe somebody's sporting journey. So you start looking at foundational movements, learning basic skills, throwing, jumping, running. And then you get involved in sport. So this is sport here. So this, this, this diagram encompasses everyone's participation in activity. But for some individuals, they move into this, what we call a high performance pathway. And depending on the stage in this pathway, um, they can move all the way up to elite performance and then ultimately mastery. And I really like these diagrams and they're used for resource allocation, but it's important for you as a practitioner to think about who am I dealing with? We do have some individuals who are elite, who are adolescent elite performers. We have some swimmers who win world championships at 16 years of age, 17 years of age. They will be surrounded by elite sport support. But for most individuals, we're dealing with them down in this, this space here. Now, my favorite model, and there are a few of them around the world, is the Canadians. I do love Canadians. I'm not sure what it is about them. They're similar to Australians. This model is quite similar in that we have an active start, fundamentals, and fit for life. So it's all about sport throughout the life, but we have this podium pathway over here. And the thing that I like about the model is that it identifies different people are on different trajectories through into this performance pathway here. So if we take participant A or you know, uh, athlete A, they get involved in the sport and the sport they become elite in right from a, a young competitor. And they develop that fairly linear pathway straight into elite performance. We have other individuals, however, who may not participate in that sport at all until a certain point in their life. And then they rapidly move into this pathway here. And then we have these other pathways over here as well. And so the thing that I like about this diagram is that it highlights that if, we, if we're aiming for elite performance, there's many pathways in. And as I said to the guys when we were preparing the other day, this is very encouraging for me, um, knowing that you know, maybe the pathway is still there for me. It's still, it's still waiting, maybe not. One example, I think, which is a really practical example of someone who's, who's gone to that level of mastery from a non-traditional pathway is this lady, Chrissy Wellington, who has won four Ironman World Championships. So it, at Hawaii, she's, she's won that event four times. Now, Chrissy Wellington, she only became a professional Ironman athlete at 30, and she only raced until she was 35. So uh, she, she never went through any junior development pathways. She entered late. Now, at her time of retirement, she has four of the fastest Ironman times ever recorded by a woman and the greatest number of sub nine hours. So she has mastered this sport, yet was never part of a talent development pathway. And a quote from her as a young person, so she was a competitive swimmer as a teenager. She went to swim for a university, but she self-describes herself as a sporty kid, swimming, playing hockey, running, never excelling, and always more interested in the social side of the sports scene. Now, this is someone who has gotten to that mastery level. And as a child, as an adolescent, would never have necessarily cropped up in one of these performance pathways, but may have seen a sports dietitian, may have gone to somebody for advice at some point. So our role here is, is critical. So this is where we're gonna spend most of our time talking about individuals who are involved in sport 
And maybe, or maybe not, they'll become elite. We don't know that. What we do know is that they'll become adults, that they'll have a relationship with their diet, and they'll have a relationship with their body, and we want it to be a long-term healthy one. We want them to reach their performance potential, but we're not wedded to it in this active and competitive adolescent phase. The second and final thing that I want to say, I've got three minutes left, is around personal development, because this is also important. I mean, we can know a lot about the textbook nutrition. We can know a lot about peak height velocity, when, when calcium is being deposited, usually two years or so after peak height velocity, by the way. So, but outside of that, we're dealing with a human being. And so what's going on? Well, when you're young, you're highly influenced by what your parents are doing, okay? And so we've got a whole range of things here that are reliant on parental influence. And the way I describe it is that it's like you've got yourself a rocket and you've got a target. And the target in this case is long-term health and development performance potential. You're putting fuel in, you're training the astronaut in a very structured and simulated way. They're not taking major risks at this point. If something fails, they go back into the simulator the next day and they try again. We, we trial different scenarios. Some are high risk, some are low risk, but it's always done in a structured environment. Everything's being put together on the launch pad for adolescence. And adolescence is really where the rocket is leaving the platform. And I describe it as a controlled experiment. That's what we want. We want someone who is being shepherded by, in this case, ground control, but they're also using their own skills and abilities and judgment to pilot themselves. So in terms of being an adolescent, yes, we have growth, physical development, establishment of nutrient deposits. We have social, emotional, sexual development, hormone and mood fluctuations. We've all been there. Some of us deny that we had them, but we've all been there. Now we've got in week four, Ben Peacock coming to talk to you who's gonna talk heavily about the peer influence. He's gonna be talking about communicating with adolescents. I've heard Ben speak once and it, it's absolutely golden. So don't miss week four. It's, 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 a, it's a must have. And a high, they have a high take on, on uh, high intake of, in, of takeaway foods, convenience, time, skills. They're major influences on food choice. Sometimes people have huge food literacy and they, they can cook for themselves and do great things. Other adolescents, don't know what a sink is. Yes, I've seen it. I've, I've given a plug to some adolescent and said, do the dishes. And they've said, what's this plug for? It's in the bottom of the sink. That's where it needs to go. So we have a spectrum. We can't necessarily determine who we're dealing with. But importantly, our job is to look at establishing a relationship with food. We need to understand the connection between diet, exercise, and body image. And that gets established in adolescence. We expect them to have new practices, beliefs, experimentations, and meanings associated with food. Adoption of vegetarianism, bad diets, supplement use. This is the natural experimentation that occurs with adolescents. Do we always agree with it? Of course we don't, but we need to manage it and it's part of the process. So with that, at 105, which I think is perfectly timed on my dad, I think I'm now going to hand over to Sharon. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Ben. Uh, just let me know if you have any troubles um, with the audio because there's some lovely builders working underneath us at this stage. Um, and Ben, I might just need you to finish off um, screen sharing if that's okay.
Now, let me know if that's coming up well. Um, thanks again to SDA for the opportunity um, to speak today. I love having the chance to talk about this group of patients. I love working with adolescent athletes and with their families because it's such a journey that you go on with them. Um, and Ben, thanks for that uh, amazing presentation. Just a really unique and such an important perspective on how we look after this group of patients. I guess I can add value today um, to everyone listening to show you a little bit about life from the perspective of a sports physician and really, you know, what I can give, but also what I need help with. Um, and so I thought I'd just quickly touch on what it is that we do and then really launch into a case study because that's everything put together in a really practical fashion. Uh, so from my perspective, people come to me from a number of different sources. You know, they either come from their GP, they're sent in from another specialist, and, and strangely, that's often the surgeons. Um, people often call us the non-operative orthopaedic surgeons because we have that same knowledge base. We work a lot with musculoskeletal injuries, but we have to, you know, come up with a way of fixing things without cutting. Um, a lot of referrals come from our physios and some from our allied health practitioners, particularly in my area. I have some fabulous sports dietitians around me who send me patients of concern. Concern. Um, but to be honest, that's probably not the most, most patients come from those other sources. And I like to have um, a parent in all my consultations, so particularly when I'm seeing that, that teenage athlete, it's really important to get that history established at the first instance with both of them in the room. The stuff we're seeing uh, is different. We, you know, the presenting condition might be an acute phenomenon and that's often that musculoskeletal basket of things that we see, or it's a more chronic problem that just hasn't been able to be fixed despite seeing a number of other practitioners over time. And so it's really important for me to get an idea of their sporting load. And, and from that, you know, that's looking at their full training history. And as Ben said, the amount of spontaneous physical activity or incidental um, physical activity that these kids do is quite amazing. You know, they, they might be um, playing for school and playing for club and playing for rep and crossing over into a number of different sports, you know, AFL for school or this or that. So they're all additive because, as you know, our body doesn't just look at what particular sport it is that we like or love or we rep at. It looks at all the activity we undertake in that day or that week. Um, so for me, a full training history is really important. And then I get a diet and nutritional history, and that's often going to be a little bit time um, sensitive for me. I don't have as much time to establish that at first. I'll usually build on that in my second and subsequent consultations. And then tying that all in with their stage of adolescent development. And like we talked about in the pre-learning, you know, I may use the Tanner stages or I may just get a rough estimate um, from what they're doing in terms of their, um, you know, height, when they had their height spurt and what their feet and shoe size is doing and things like that. And by the end of that first consult, I really want to have a bit of a differential diagnosis. I want to know what we think we're dealing with. It's got to funnel into a couple of baskets um, and I need to know how to fine tune that. That's where I use my tests. So they're going to get imaging or pathology tests or something else that can help refine which of those basket of things we're dealing with. I'm going to give that, that adolescent and that family member an explanation of what's going on. And they just need a kind of a short-term management plan to get them through until we know exactly what it is that we're dealing with. And so, as I said, the stuff we commonly see, there's a lot of musculoskeletal medicine that comes through our doors, and that's bony stress injuries or those overuse injuries of um, cartilage and physes that we see a lot of apophysitis. That's things like the Osgood Schlatter knees and all that type of stuff. Um, there's acute trauma in any sporting arena. It doesn't always have to be knees, but there are a lot of knees and ankles that come through our doors. Um, with the teen group, we see a lot of concussions. So that's all of those contact sport and sometimes semi-contact sport athletes that we're managing. Undiagnosed pain is a bit of a favourite of mine because that's where I get to play um, 
Dr. House. Does anyone remember that old TV show? And Dr. House was a wonderful diagnostician and he'd get all this cluster of weird symptoms and signs and he'd, you know, put his brilliant hat on. And apart from being an obnoxious person, he'd usually come up with what this is in a nutshell. And it was always something random and weird. But I love that because it's a really good opportunity to dig deeply into an athlete's history. And often no one has taken the time to pull a lot of unrelated threads together. So I get a lot of undiagnosed conditions coming through the front door and I've got to be Dr. House. Um, fatigue is a really common one in this age group as well. To, you know, the tired teenager, that's a very common presentation. And then particularly in a elite sport niche, sometimes people just aren't performing as expected. So that's, again, we have to look at all of those reasons as to why. Um, so my part of my job and when we're managing these athletes is to look at load management. And again, as Ben said, it's it's everything added together. It's all the incidental stuff. It's the school, you know, load or perhaps that early university load that's on them. Uh, what are they doing in their spare time? How are they managing their part-time job? What are the things that can give a little bit? And what are the things that are absolutely mandatory because you want to get to nationals? So load management is, is a key um, in my everyday job. Lots of pain relief, lots of explanation. So analgesia and it's often simple things but remembering this group of of patients and athletes don't quite have the knowledge that we have in this realm so they're not sure what they should be taking when they should be taking and even simple advice goes a long way in this group uh, there's a heap of communication that I do um, with these guys and it's to school or to the coach or to the physio or all of that sort of healthcare team around the athlete there's a lot of time spent in communication and education, which I kind of love. I feel like um, it's our role as healthcare providers to increase their health literacy at this age group. They're not yet professional athletes or elite athletes. We want to build them into elite athletes. So I love educating about what their body can do and should do and how it heals and how it's meant to work. Unfortunately, sometimes you know, those are the bits that you kind of have to pair off the end because you just don't always have as much time for that education. Um, and so when I send someone to see a sports dietitian, there are a couple of things that I would really love help with. You know, um, maybe I've come to the opinion that this person is deficient in something. It's either a macro or a micronutrient deficiency. I think there's something missed here. I want someone to be able to spend the time to look and assess what they're doing and taking in and probably how that should match with probably what their body needs for this stage and with that load that we've talked about. Um, I would love the sports dietitian to be able to educate um, the athlete and their family member. It's, it's always about who feeds whom in a household. Um, and so often these guys just aren't responsible for many of their dietary choices. They're literally taking what comes a lot of the time. Time. Um, education as to what an elite athlete body is built from, what it should look like, what a training nutrition you know, should look like depending on stage and age and that sort of thing. That's the stuff I need help with. Um, I do also love um, when that sports dietitian has a hat on to detect um, disordered eating behaviours and things like that because I'll often get an inkling of it, but it may not fully come out. And so having that opportunity to really, um, you know, forge a relationship with that sports dietitian who is going to support them over the next years um, as they, you know, grow into a much more talented athlete. And then that person has the ability to keep their ear close to the ground and to pick up on any, um, you know, signs that we are dealing with something a little bit deeper here. 
And then the last thing is probably, it probably comes under education, but it's still, um, sometimes they just don't know how to eat for muscle growth. I'm thinking of those boys playing contact sports and they, they believe you're meant to buy a protein powder and, you know, drink it all in two weeks and then you get big and strong. And they don't quite understand the process of eating for muscle growth and athlete performance. So those are probably the areas that I, I need help with. And, um, you know, again, because time sometimes is limited in our consultations. And so I'm hoping that with they, establish a relationship with their sports dietitian that will keep going for many months and years and I don't need to always be a part of that sometimes my role is done I've handed over I fixed the knee or ankle or whatever but they're going to keep going with that established relationship so I thought what I would do is pull all this together with everything that um, Ben has given us uh, at the start of the session and and sort of the little bits I've touched on into how we would manage um, a young elite athlete so we're going to talk about Sarah and Sarah is a 15 year old swimmer um, and I'm going to let you know how I approach it and then how I involve other healthcare providers. Okay, so Sarah's 15 years of age and she trains at an elite private school and it has its own swim squad and its own swim coach. Uh, and they train many Olympic swimmers in this squad. And Sarah's been referred to me um, from her physio because she's had some right shoulder pain for the last couple of weeks and she's accompanied by her mum. And so my first job is to establish a background on Sarah. And I do tread very gently at the start. I don't want to get anyone offside. So I ask about all the safe things. You know, what grade are you? You're 10. And, uh, you know, what's your training history? And she's been swimming in squads since age eight. Um, and she does HPE at school. And she plays AFL for school. And she doesn't want to know, you know, know what she wants to do when she leaves school. Maybe she wants to be an OT. Um, she wants to get to the nationals this year within her sport. She swims free and fly um, but she just hasn't been able to train as normal for the last couple of weeks because of this shoulder pain and the physio has kept her out of the pool for these sessions and she's quite you know disappointed at that and I note that this young lady is an excellent communicator she speaks really clearly she's not needing a mum to clarify anything and so first things first a complete history of the shoulder pain and I try and understand the cause and the mechanism because I actually need to come up with a what tissue is causing this and what is the diagnosis and as we're discussing things like that I, I introduce other concepts so I start asking about sleep and energy levels and it's at this point that her mum interrupts and says she's actually been struggling with her energy levels for you know more than a few weeks um, and I can see these two already have a good relationship because Sarah's listening you know quietly and respectfully while her mum's talking and she she adds additional info in a polite manner when her mum's finished talking so that's already a good basis it means I can involve mum as needed um, moving forward from here. So now I have two problems um, to solve. I have shoulder pain and in my head, I'm thinking, right, I have a limited time for this concert. I've got shoulder pain and now I've got fatigue. Okay. Um, so back to the history, fatigue, six weeks, tired all the time, sleeping poorly, napping on weekends, um, napping when able, almost fell asleep in class this week. Appetite, poor. Weight, she thinks it's stable, but she's not sure. Her mum's also unsure. And when I ask her about a diet, Sarah and her mum both laugh out loud. Um, she comments she doesn't like vegetables. Mum says she's very picky. Um, I can already see this is another area of concern. And I try and explore more, you know, tell me what you eat on a normal training day. Um, and I see some of the usual things I see in adolescence. I see, you know, I don't like meat. I don't like protein. I don't like to eat around training. I'm always at training. I've got no time to prepare it. I don't have any transportable food, all this sort of stuff common themes um, and then um, my comment back to her is about her poor appetite you know was this a new thing did you used to have a good appetite um, and yes yes she did uh, do you understand how to eat around your training and what you as an athlete should be eating no she doesn't really neither does mum mum would love some guidance as to what to feed this you know lovely kid that's doing really well but doesn't really have any idea how to fuel for performance 
So now I've got three problems. I've got shoulder pain, I've got fatigue, and I've got the nutrition and the appetite rolled in together. So this is still in my 45 minutes. And in my mind, I'm thinking shoulder pain is easy, right? That's a musculoskeletal thing. That's my bread and butter. I can do that. I can examine it, get some imaging, get her in and out of there. Maybe she needs a cortisone. I'll get her back into the pool pretty quickly. Fatigue, I'm thinking that's a much longer list of possible causes. I need to examine her a whole lot more and a long list of differentials and a lot of pathology that I'm going to be ordering here. And nutrition, I'm like, at least I can send her to someone I trust, someone who's going to address this immediate nutrition needs. Um, and it's going to develop that rapport with the family that they're going to need and support her over time. I finish off a history with all the simple stuff, medications, allergies, alcohol, cigarette, illicit drugs, family history, you know, things like diabetes or, or cancers, general health. Um, at the very end, I kind of get onto periods and it's always tricky with mum sitting right there. Uh, and Sarah comments that she really only started last year. The periods are irregular and there's kind of a long gap between the cycles. And I finish off with a stage of growth assessment, you know, like when did you have your height spurt? What are your feet doing? That sort of stuff to give me an idea. Then I get into physical examination and I ask mum to step outside at this stage because it's appropriate now for me and Sarah to be alone in the same room. She's fine with that. She strips down to her bra and tight. She's very, very lean, which automatically raises my concern. I examine her shoulder and that's really safe territory. And I can ask her, you know, about her shoulder muscle mass. Does she think she looks any different when she looks in the mirror and looks at her delts and stuff like that? I start examining her for fatigue. That's things like looking at her lymph nodes. I have to do a full cardiac exam and a respiratory exam and an abdo exam. And she's tender in a right upper quadrant but everything else is normal then I write some really brief notes when mum comes back my plan imaging for the shoulder because that's what they needed and that's what they really came in here expecting blood tests she's really not happy about this now I have a distraught teenager who has a needle phobia that I didn't know about but it's not uncommon in teens and I spend some time explaining why as an athlete she actually does need to go ahead and even though I know she doesn't like it it will give us some valuable results I comfort her um, number three referrals to the sports dietitian I just need some help at this stage because 45 minutes is up okay and she needs assessment of her dietary intake and all the stuff that Ben's going to do she needs knowledge about fueling and then communications. I send a letter to the coach, a quick letter to the physio, a letter for school and HPE. And I get all the paperwork organized for the tests. And then I hand over to Ben, who is going to see her. I'm not sure I can hear you, Ben. You can't hear me, but you could now, hopefully. <laughs> Got there in the end. Okay, back onto your phones now because I've got some questions for you. So you've got this um, this young lady coming to see you after seeing Sharon, and poor Sharon is juggling balls left, right, and centre here with this case study. It's gone back on mute there accidentally for some reason. I'm back. Um, what I would like you to do is just quickly grab your phone again. Um, I'm going to give you, uh, for those people who missed it the first time, a quick look at the QR code, just a refresh to the QR code. Um, so use that now. And then I'm going to bring up the next question. So once you've got the QR code there, I will um, now escape out of that. And you should be able to, or I can already see people starting to answer the question. So. This person's coming to see a young girl. What, if any, anthropometric parameters would you assess? You can choose as many of these options as you like, um, from none uh, through to um, potentially reporting other. And if there is something else 
that you would um, measure or take a measure of, um, you can enter that in the chat box if you like, because we'd like to know what other actually means. I don't have the functionality with this question to um, put, a, put a word response. So we've got one other there so far. And so we'll just uh, allow the responses to come in and just have a look to see where these, um, where these things fall. Okay, so um, it looks like the majority of people would take growth chart from a report or measured, and I didn't, I didn't necessarily specify that, but um, that was just more to have a look at um, uh, the use of growth charts. And certainly growth charts were described in the pre-reading material as something, you know, sort of standard assessment for um, adolescents in this space. Um, uh, the second proportion there is that, you know, you, people would actually measure weight and height um, reported weight and height um, was about um, half of those people who would, would measure. So I would imagine there's some people who both get the person to report and measure, but there are um, groups there that potentially may only report or get reported weight and height. Four people with skin folds, um, five people with a referral for a, a DEXA, and that may be both body composition and, and bone density, um, potentially. Um, and then there's one in the other, and I haven't got the chat box um, to, I'll have a look at that as we go through. Now, I guess I, at this point, in terms of what's the correct answer here, well, there, is, there isn't necessarily one correct answer, but there are some things that I think are important to tease out. First thing is that in terms of the things that Sharon has mentioned that she's looking for from a sports dietitian, at least three of the four of them involve maintaining a relationship with this person. So you can't educate you can't provide a degree of understanding of, um, you know, ad advice around muscle growth or, um, uh, and Sharon, you might be able to help me with your, your other sort of goals there. I don't have the slide in front of me, but um, I could probably scroll down to it. Most of them were about establishing a relationship with this person, or they were going to be impossible to achieve without establishing a relationship with the person. Um, so uh, that, that to me is, is critically important. Detecting eating disorders and attitudes, that was one of the other things. Um, and, um, um, you know, addressing deficiencies. So um, I guess this is an area of clinical practice which is um, very subjective and very contextual, but we need to um, bear in mind that there are um, several sporting organisations now that are looking very closely at what, if any, anthropometric measures should be encouraged or recommended even for qualified health professionals to, to employ, particularly um, to clients that they may not necessarily be familiar with in an initial consultation. Now, my advice in this space is to tread very carefully and that as Sharon alluded to, many of the things that she's looking for don't require lots of direct measures of anthropometry. They actually require a relationship to be developed and something like getting somebody to report their weight and height is far less potentially um, impactful on an individual than actually measuring weight and height. And certainly when it moves to the level of having skin folds taken, um, if you look at Gymnastics Australia, for instance, and even um, some new information that will be coming out from Swimming Australia, the use of anthropometry in adolescence needs to be done in, you know, in, in very judicious environments, surrounded usually by a, a, a supportive um, uh, group or, or environment. And, that, and we're going to see more and more sporting organisations coming forward saying, yes, we understand the importance of understanding body composition for physique in sport, but where is the balance between the benefit that's achieved at the individual level and the benefit 
and, and, the, and the cost that comes with having lots of anthropometry done on a 15-year-old who's already not eating or is struggling to eat. And so we need, we need to be doing that as a consequence of what's in the best long-term interest of the individual, not what's part of the dietetic practice that we always do. And so this is, this is going to be important. Now, without doing any calculation at all, I want you to answer my next question. I want to find out what your best guesstimate is of Sarah's energy requirement when she's training fully. So at the moment, she's injured and she's doing uh, reduced training. But I'm just interested in a group of dietitians estimate. And in here, we have to do it in megajoules, unfortunately. So you have to think about it as thousands of kilojoules, not kilojoules. And the reason for that is because the scale of the question only allowed me to do that. I'm interested to know where people's values lie in terms of the distribution of people's guesstimates of energy requirement. So without calculating anything, just nice and fast. Well, I wouldn't necessarily describe that as a bell curve. I would describe that as, well, we've got a, we've got a peak. So this is the average value here at 12.9, almost 13 megajoules. We have eight people um, at uh, uh, a bit under that. So we're about 13,000 kilojoules. Okay, I might hand back to you now, Sharon, uh, for your slide uh, so that you can um, unearth my calculation. Oh, you're on mute. Okay. Okay. Uh, I hope I put that slide in the right spot, Ben. Sorry. That's all right. It's no problem if you. There we go. Yep. How's that? Okay. So, yep, that's perfect. So, just quickly, um, we won't be able to get through too much more of this um, case study. Here's a slide that gives you some rough examples of using energy equation. Uh, I, I, I don't. I wouldn't spend a huge amount of time precisely determining this. It's clearly over ten thousand kilojoules a day. In this individual, um, and you can do that. Here's an example of how to estimate someone's energy cost of exercise. You can do um, calculations where you not only establish their resting metabolic rate, but we can factor in, um, in this case, water activities, freestyle swimming. You can work out um, how many extra calories to, to add in for various sessions that someone's doing. So it's just a, a simple sort of multiplication. It doesn't account for your physical activity as spontaneous physical activity, but it gives you a ballpark and that's really what you're looking for. But we can see here that even in this, uh, when I look at the graph, you guys can't see it at the moment, we have, we have a fairly broad spectrum of guesstimates. So I, I would like to, to, to see our guesstimates improving. And in this case, average is about 12 and a half, 12 to 13 megajoules. I think you're in the ballpark there on average. So that's quite good. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Ben. Um, Beth, I'm just going to quickly look to you. Are you happy if we go five or 10 minutes over? If anyone has to leave, they can dash off and this will all be recorded and they can, you know, log back in later just to watch the tail end because I think we might go five or 10 over with apologies. Um, okay, so, um, so Sarah's come back. It's her second appointment with me. Findings. Well, looky up here. Can you guys see that? I, know, I can show you. Sarah's iron deficient. Her ferritin's 16, but she doesn't have any evidence of anemia. Sarah's also positive for Epstein-Barr virus or glandular fever, and that's a new onset infection for her. Thankfully for me, the MRI also shows that she has supraspinatus pathology in her right shoulder, and that's an easy musculoskeletal thing for me to manage. So in her review appointment, I've got 30 minutes in which to manage iron deficiency, new onset glandular fever, 
and the shoulder pathology. So what do I do? I educate the shoulder stuff first, prognosis, rehab, make sure the physio is informed, write to everyone that needs to know because that's the stuff she's worried about and that's what's keeping her out of the pool. I educate regarding iron deficiency, what this means, and I suggest some options. She's going to start oral iron supplementation. I discussed glandular fever, where she caught it, what it means for her training. No training at the moment. She's not happy about that either. And then I try and get up to speed on how the consult with Ben went. It would be fabulous if I had some sort of written communication from Ben saying maybe what they covered in that first session, his findings, you know, if he agrees with what I was saying or if he's added in something else or clarifying anything that he's found. If I'm on the right or the wrong track, please, you know, let me know um, what he hopes to achieve in their next couple of meetings. But I don't have time to read anything massive from Ben. I don't have time to read a food diary or a super long multiple page letter. I barely have time to update him with a quick note that says her iron's low and I've started her on ferrograde C and she has EBV. Um, I sent a letter back to the GP. This case is so complex now. It's time she had a really good GP involved in her care and I explained this to mum and Sarah. And with my sort of, you know, general health professional hat, I'm thinking multidisciplinary care is the way to go with this young lady. And I plan a review appointment with her and I get um, the second appointment with Ben happening. Right, that's her... Uh, iron deficiency. So I'm following that path from our AIS um, iron supplementation options um, and I'm sending her back to Ben. And I think you're still muted, Ben. Yep. I'm juggling multiple screens, doing mo multiple things poorly here. I'm just going to um, go back to my slide, if you don't mind, Sharon. I had uh, two bits of information on there. Um, and that might be asking more than I can deliver. Hang on. Back to that previous one. Yeah, the previous slide that I had. So the sorts of presentation that you might typically see here at the bottom of this slide, you can see, a, you know, an energy intake of about six and a half thousand kilojoules protein intakes relatively sort of consistent with that carbohydrate and fat intake. The iron intakes very, very uh, low relative to the requirements and the fibre is commensurate with the six and a half thousand kilojoule um, intake and the calcium intakes low as well. Um, and, you know, it, it's not at all surprising to see a high reliance on snack foods and, and some limited food literacy. Um, if someone's doing lots of training, um, it's quite often the case that they're not heavily involved in the food preparation. And so in, 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 a, in a case like this, to me, it's about establishing the relationship you have with the client in terms of getting them to engage in self-management of their own food intake and understanding how their body relates to um, the, the training and the, and the dietary needs of that. So one of the things that I would look for straight away is to um, get them in, in, engaged in some degree of sort of um, food um, literacy or, or food development. And it might be that you, you start by utilising the iron or, or the poor iron intake as a motivator to cook a meal that's high in iron, but also to do that for the family. So it might be something that um, can be coordinated with the mother and the daughter so that there's one day of the week that's identified that this will be the meal that um, this young person is, is cooking it's focused around having sources of iron. So you can talk about, okay, where's iron found? What are the things that we use for complementing iron absorption? Um, so that she's starting to develop some food literacy at the same time as taking some um, steps to manage 
her dietary iron intake, also having the responsibility of preparing food for other people and, and engaging um, more in that sort of social aspect of food. Um, and, and it may be that this happens concurrently with the supplementation so that an individual is becoming aware of dietary sources of iron, but it's a supplement to um, other more acute strategies that are also going to be concurrently in place. And so in a follow-up consultation, I would look to um, really, um, I guess, gauge how those initial strategies of a, of a, like a cooking type um, activity uh, and understanding the symptomology from a tiredness perspective and obviously an element of dietary intake would be the sort of primary focus of where I would take a, a second follow-up appointment. Um, use of things like um, resources, like a, uh, and depending on how that goes, obviously, um, you can um, provide you know, some additional resources such as recipes and things like that that might be sport-focused so that um, Sarah feels as though you're catering to her sporting needs um, by way of nutrition. And it's, and it's sort of purpose built for her as an individual. That would be, I guess, the, the focus that I'd be looking on. And then trying to communicate that back to Sharon in the most efficient way possible for, so that she understands in bullet points, this is what we're working on. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Ben. So I'll just take us back to where I'd left Sarah. So she's had a second appointment with Ben. And so, She's come back to me and it's a, it's a third opportunity to meet with Sarah and her mum. And thankfully for us, because we haven't got time today, it's the last one I'll get to. Um, so I've heard back from the physio now and Sarah's boyfriend is in the same swim squad as her. And strangely, he has glandular fever as well. But Sarah herself is feeling better. It's been about three weeks now since that initial appointment and her energy levels are coming back again. And she's desperate to return to the pool. And so we discuss how we go about returning to sport, particularly after a viral infection like EBV. And the risks, things like chronic fatigue, which her mum has read about and is now worried about. And then I get to check in with her. How's the shoulder? How's the sleep? How's the iron tablets going? How are the periods lately? She hasn't had another one as yet. How's the diet going? Is Ben helping? What have you implemented since you last saw Ben? Great work. That positive reinforcement that she's making steps in the right direction. Because this, as Ben has said, this is a relationship and this is going to take a while for things to start to improve. Every step is a positive step at this stage. And so now that I know them well, I've asked mum to step outside. This is a really good chance, probably at the second or third consult for me usually, to speak to the athlete on their own. And this is my chance to ask Sarah about things like her weight. Um, what are her thoughts about her weight? And it turns out that her coach thinks she's a little bit too heavy. And so Sarah is actually quite glad she's had glandular fever because that's reduced her appetite. And she thinks she might have lost a few kilos. And so she's going to be a lot leaner when she returns to the pool. So some of those thoughts are concerning to me and I use this opportunity to explore other aspects, including the relationship with the boyfriend, you know, they call glandular fever the kissing disease and work out what's going on there and are they sexually active. And so I realise there is layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of things. My problem list now includes... Right shoulder, supraspinatus tendinopathy, that's the thing at the front of her mind. It's the thing that's keeping her out of the pool. It's the reason she's here and it's the most critical thing to address. But she also has iron deficiency, acute glandular fever, body image concerns, restrictive eating, boyfriend pressure for sex, poor knowledge and access to contraception and low energy availability. 
So this is the point where it all comes, you know, crashing down and not one person can manage this. So this is where I do recruit my multidisciplinary team. I've already got Ben involved. I've started communication dialogue with the GP and I do consider offering psych support at this stage, although it might be a concept that I introduce in the next visit. And I wonder if I can phrase it such as performance psych support or coping with injury psych support, or just frankly offer, you know, body image support. They're all, they're all very relevant, but it's more a matter of caging it and phrasing it for her and her mum. And I think to myself, this is going to take me a very long time to sort out this athlete. Now, I know I've, I've kind of gone over with the number of things. This is actually a true case um, and quite representative of sometimes the layer upon layer of things that we find with adolescents. You know, sometimes they're people who haven't had a very close relationship with a GP or they've just been sitting on issues, musculoskeletal or otherwise, for quite a long period of time. And when they finally get a chance to start sharing or they get a practitioner that they trust, everything starts to come out. So it's not unusual that we have this great long checklist or wish list of things to be addressed. And so for me, that's the time when I start, you know, involving all the other practitioners and together we can chip away at these things. And some people are going to be needed for a shorter term basis. Some people, because she's aiming to be elite, some people like Ben are going to be needed, you know, on her side, in her corner for a very long time moving forward. So I know we've definitely run over time and I apologise for that, um, but I think we might hand back to Beth just to see if there's any questions as we don't have a lot of time left. Thanks, Sharon. I haven't seen any questions come up and I do thank uh, in particular Helen for her current examples that she's given the group um, in relation. I've just seen one question pop up. Um, so we've got a, a question, and this is quite interesting, and it'll be the only question we'll take. If anyone else has got any questions, we'll answer them later. But we've just got a question about your thoughts, each of you, on supplement use in under-18s. Generally, sports dietitians tend not to recommend supplements, but we know that sometimes there's parental pressure and sometimes there's adolescent boys in particular that are using them, and we'd just like to get an idea of your thoughts. Um, ben, you can go first. <laughs> okay, well, I've, I've, I've written a couple of position statements on adolescence, and invariably they all always contain a section on supplements. And 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 um, and, and the bottom line is that um, that the information that we have on most of them around safety and efficacy is poorly understood. Probably with the exception, I would say, of creatine. Creatine is one supplement that we've known about for a long period of time that appears to be relatively harmless. And there have been some safety studies done on young people. And it does appear that it's probably not harmful to um, any individual of any age. Obviously, if you've got an underlying kidney issue, which we can't identify because people don't wear, I've got a kidney issue on their forehead, um, that it may exacerbate um, those issues as a high protein diet would in somebody who's got you know, some, some serious kidney issues. But um, the evidence around that supplement is, is, is probably the one that I would say appears to be relatively safe in, in adolescence. Other than that, um, I think what we need to very much recognise is that what we do in a lab by way of a study and the prescribed use of a supplement may be a huge departure from the way an adolescent takes a supplement. And, and the approach that they take. So for instance, you know, things that we see on the shelf that an adolescent may take, a classic example might be something like a pre-workout supplement. We've done studies looking at the caffeine content of pre-workout supplements. And when we do those studies, we tend to look at the recommended dose 
Um, and even in you know, many of those products, we're seeing 250 to 350 milligrams of caffeine in a serve, but younger individuals are probably more likely the population to take two or three serves because they wanna get ripped and shredded faster than they have time. And so you're talking about a relatively lower body weight individual taking potentially a much greater than recommended dose. So I, th I think supplements are a really challenging area because they are a, an, an example of one of these things that I mentioned earlier about that self-experimentation. And it's not always that adolescents are thinking logically. In fact, in my experience, rarely are they thinking logically. Often it's, it's very um, uh, unstructured and, and somewhat um, uh, focused on the context and, and, and the opportunity that just presents. And it can be inadvertent that they might, friends got something, Someone's told them to take this and, and away they go. So I wouldn't shy away from a discussion about supplements, but just as the AIS sports supplement program has, has embraced an element of, if you're going to do something, this is probably the approach that I would take. I really like that harm minimization approach. And there are some supplements, the vast majority that we would get them to sort of stay away from. And obviously they've got contaminant risks and all of those other things that supplements have. But I think, in an individual who's going to take some supplements, then something like, like a, a whey protein from a reputable brand is probably going to be the supplement that you'd be recommending. Not for any other reason than they just want to be told, yes, I'm taking a supplement sometimes. And if that's your gateway to then having a conversation about other elements or, okay, if you're going to take a supplement, I also want you to um, go through this education material and tell me about what the supplement's doing. I'm happy to support your use, but this is this is how we're going to use it. is is a more constructive way. I mean, if someone, if an adolescent's gotten to the point where they're having a conversation with you about supplements, that's a really, really good thing, you know, because most of them are, are not going to tell you; they're just going to be taking it, or they're going to be taking it in a very ad hoc way. So, I would use that as an opportunity to work with that individual. Yeah, I'll give my 10 cents worth as well. Um, so for me, um, you know, medical supplements are quite safe in this age group. So I'm frequently using iron tablets, zinc tablets, um, B12 injections, things like that. If there is a nutritional deficiency that I can identify or, or zinc for acne or something like that, I'll use that in this age group. Um, performance type supplements I'm always showing them the AIS sports supplement framework I'm saying some things are safe and some things aren't safe and so it's quite easy to to start that education piece but as Ben said there's there's pressure there to be doing it and so for me something like a group A type of whey protein if I can allow them to have a little bit of fun with that and I tell them what to look out for and it might upset your tummy and all those different things that they need to know and then feed back to me how you think it went because it might just be that little bit of extra protein calories that you need after a training session by all means go for it I, i'm a huge still food first person and so i'll talk, tell them to get the chalky milk in preference to the whey protein but you know what that it's possibly more convenient and they do have super busy lifestyles you know just as busy as any of the rest of us so if it works for them yes and that's mainly that category a stuff i don't tend to use anything else um, for this age group yeah it's a great question though an important question all right, we'll finish up there. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today and apologies for going over time. Just, um, I might just say, in reference to the pre-reading we've been talking about throughout today's lecture, it's actually a pre-video that Pascal's put together. So if you're looking for lectures or 
looking for papers, they're not there. It's actually a video that's on Moodle. So that's what we've been referring to throughout today's presentation. When you log off, you will get a questionnaire through um, asking you to rate today's session and we'd ask you to fill that. And also please don't forget to log your CDP points. Thanks very much. And we'll see you for our next lecture in four weeks time. Thanks Sharon, thanks Ben, thanks everyone. Goodbye guys. Thanks Ben, bye. Thanks Sharon.